This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast, there's two left, so we might as well get it done. Rochester won both of their games against the Rush this season. Will that play a factor into the NLL Cup final? We're going to have a coin toss at halftime of game two to figure out if the Seals or Wings will pick first. The WLA season kicks off tonight in Langley, and they're also adding a third ref. All that and more on OTCB. I am an What is good, lacrosse fans, and welcome back to another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast. My name is Teddy Jenner. Welcome to the show. Find me on Twitter at Off the Crossbar or drop me an email, teddy.jenner at gmail.com. 85 games are in the books. Four in the playoffs, 81 during the regular season, and we could have as many as three or as few as two games remaining in the 2020. 18 season. That is right. We are on the cusp of the NLL Cup final. The Nighthawks, the Rush vying for the opportunity to lift the brand new NLL Cup. I hope you're excited because this will be a clash of titans and I'm still maybe a little bit on the fence of which way I'm going in this series. I have a feeling it goes three. I'll share some thoughts of what some of the other National Lacrosse League players uh, had to say. I told them all it would be anonymous so they could have voted for whoever they wanted and said whatever they wanted uh, because I know some guys don't like that information being out there. So we'll get to some of that later. Uh, Brendan Glasheen, the voice of the National Lacrosse League on Twitter, will join us in a few minutes. Uh, I had a chance to catch up with him on Tuesday. And he, alongside Brian Shanahan, will have the call of all three games of the NLL Cup Final, which gets going this Saturday from Saskatoon in what will most likely be a jam-packed SaskTel Center on the 26th. 15,000-plus standing, screaming, chest-pumping lunatics, all dressed in green and black as the Rush and Nighthawks will renew playoff familiarity. The last time these two clubs faced off was back in 2012, Rochester defeating the then Edmonton Rush 9-6 in the championship game played at the Blue Cross Arena. Uh, No surprise. Cody Jameson was involved in that game, and he had a doozy, eight points in that one. And there's not many familiar faces or repeat faces on either of the two teams. Less than two handfuls, I believe, will be playing in this finals that we're playing back in the 2012 finals. You could make it a full handful if you count Jimmy Quinlan. Uh, He was on the team during that game. He is now one of the coaches with the Rush. So um, while some of the names are the same, the jerseys are the same, this is going to be a much different feel to this championship final, mostly because it's the best two of three. Back then, just a one-gamer. So there have been a lot of people weighing in on this. I know so many people have little polls up on Twitter and social media, who you got, Nighthawks, Rush. And I think a lot of the strong money is going towards the Rush. And I think that's a fair bet. 
even though Rochester comes in as one of the hottest teams still in the National Cross League, I believe they finished um, seven and two down their last nine or seven and three down their last ten. Uh, now they've won two more in the playoffs, so they are just on a roll. However, the rush, this is a team that's built to win in the playoffs. And Derek Keenan has his group back to their fourth straight NLL Cup final. And I just think that everything that's gone on with them losing last year to Georgia and then just completely dominating the NLL West this year, I just think it's their year. Now, people are going to look and say, hey, you know what? Well, what about Rochester beating them twice during the regular season? True point. And that is a very valid argument. However, as one national lacrosse leaguer put it to me, it's going to be tough for the Nighthawks to beat the Rush four times out of five. And I think that's a strong argument because they're going to have to win two more of the next three, which would give them four out of a possible five games played. And I just don't see it happening. I don't see the Rush losing four games to one team. Of course, it could happen. Anything is possible. But if it is going to happen, Matt Vince is going to have to take his game to an even higher level. He is playing some incredible lacrosse right now. He has a .833 save percentage, and he's got a 9.5 goals against average. Ridiculous numbers for Vino. This guy loves the playoffs. He loves big game performances. And he's going to have to come up with a couple more if he's going to help his team to the Champions Cup. Nope, it's not that anymore, Ted. It's the NLL Cup. I got it right that time. Champions Cup was the last 30-odd years. Now we are the NLL Cup. Big and shiny and silver. You can lift it with one hand. You can drink out of it. It's like the boot. Just got to twist it at the right spot so you don't get the bubble. So be wary, whoever lifts it and drinks out of it first. So let's dive a little deeper into this matchup, shall we? Because while people will look at the past two games, I think you can throw all of that out the window. Because once you get to the playoffs and once you get beyond that into the finals, nothing else matters. Sure, you can rely on past successes and you can go back and watch game tape and you can see what worked and what didn't. But I can guarantee you that both Mike Hazen and Derek Keenan and their collective groups have fine-tooth combed every single game they've played against each other and every single game their opponent has played this year, found all the weaknesses, found their strengths, corrected their own weaknesses, and modified their own strengths. It is going to be two very talented teams with incredibly intelligent coaches running things. It is going to be a chess match between Hazen and Derek Keenan. Almost forgot his name there for a second. 
And I think that's going to be one of the biggest intangibles. There are a lot of intangibles in this game. Uh, Kirk versus Vino. Uh, Jeremy Thompson versus Jake Withers. Uh, the two top power plays in the entire National Lacrosse League going head-to-head. You can't take a shift off. But I really think that the coaching adjustments in-game and between games one and two and maybe even three are going to be imperative. I think being able to find matchups and key on specific guys and exploit some weaknesses are going to be the difference in this game. Both teams love to run the ball in transition. I think you probably can give a bit of an edge to the rush. Goaltending, I think as well as Evan Kirk has been playing, you have to give the edge to the Nighthawks. Defensively, I think and I feel that while the Rush have a very athletic and physical and fast defense, something about that Nighthawks defense and the punishing, aggressive way that they play can give teams problems. And if they're able to slow down that Rush offense, then they can be successful. So maybe give a little check mark to the Nighthawks. Offensively, I've never seen a team move the ball as well as the Saskatchewan Rush do, whether it be on the power play, whether it's short, whether it's four-on-four, five-on-five, three-on-three, whatever the scenario is, no team moves the ball better east to west, north and south, north and south than the Rush do. It is an absolute treat to watch sometimes, and as well as this Rochester unit offensively has come together over the last month and a half, I just don't think they have the depth that the Rush do. Jeff Shatler is a loose ball machine out the offensive door, and he gets so many second and third reset possessions for his team that it's invaluable. I asked one National Lacrosse League coach who he thought on Rochester's offense could play that role of fire starter, of loose ball guy, multiple reset possessions, and they said maybe Austin Shanks. And Austin Shanks taking his game to another level in these playoffs, which is very impressive to see, especially from a rookie on the offensive end of the floor. Oftentimes, rookies will take a step back in the postseason because the game gets a little quicker in the later stages of the year. And defenses get a little tougher and a little tighter. But Austin Shanks has found a way. And when you can get the youth contributing, it really can help the elder statesmen of your offense because not only will you give them more touches, but you can also give them a few more breaths as well. So while Rochester's offense is very potent and strong, I think you have to definitely give the edge to the Saskatchewan rush. So there we go. We're pretty much dead even. Power play, you give a slight edge to the rush. They finish just below 70, but those two, top two in the league, not much discernible difference. Rush, their short man, a little bit stronger than the Nighthawks. So maybe another little check there. Special teams, give it to the rush. Faceoffs, I think Jake Withers has the advantage over Jeremy Thompson, but this is another key factor. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were setting things up for the divisional final series going into both games and how faceoffs were going to be important. And Jake Withers is going to play a huge role in this series. 
there's no doubt about it. He and Jeremy Thompson are going to be seeing a lot of each other. And Withers won the first battle between the two clubs. The second battle, they were fairly even. And I think if Jeremy Thompson and Mike Messenger can throw some different looks at Withers, you can maybe start to wear him down, especially Messenger, who's a bit of a heavier guy on the draw. can be a little more physical with Withers if he wants. But I think if you're going to nullify the abilities of Jake Withers, you have to not only let your draw guy know that, hey, that's your responsibility. I would even send a guy straight off the back line right at Jake Withers. And I know teams used to do this with Jeff Snyder. And I know we did it with the Victoria Shamrocks when Snyder was playing with the Adnex. Obviously, it's a little bit different because in the WLA, guys are lined up right on that face-off circle right around it. So the proximity between defender and drawman isn't very much. And we used to say as soon as that whistle goes and Snyder picks up the ball, one D guy just go right at him. Don't worry about the guy you're checking. The face-off guy can drop back. One guy, just basically bum-rush Schneider. Don't let him get comfortable with the ball. Make him make a turnover. Now, in the NLL, obviously, with however many 20, 25 yards between the restraining line and center, Jake Withers and, for that matter, Jeremy Thompson have some space once they win that ball to run away from players. But I still think you have to send a guy right at Jake Withers, not let him get momentum, not let him beat you. Contain him, keep him away from the front of the net, don't let him beat you around the outside, and don't let him score momentum goals. I'm really excited to watch what Withers does and how he combats the likes of Thompson and Messenger. If I'm Derek Keenan, I let Messenger just absolutely clamp right on Withers all night long. Be physical, because that's what Messenger does. Messenger is a very physical, athletic kid, and he can take draws. And if Jake Withers is going to be successful winning them, I would rather to have Messenger right on him right away, couple slashes, couple cross checks, force him to move the ball. Thompson can do it, but sometimes Thompson gets caught up in things and can be a little um, undisciplined at times. Whereas Messenger, he plays on that edge, but his physicality allows him to get away with some things. And so I like Messenger going up against Withers, even though Thompson will probably give you a better chance at outright winning the ball on the draw. I think having Messenger there to take the draws against Withers will do a much more effective job of limiting Withers once he gets the ball. This is going to be a heck of a playoff series. Like I said, I asked numerous amounts of guys throughout the National Lacrosse League. And I just, you know, just asking what their thoughts were and who they thought were going to be winning. And most people are saying that the depth of Saskatchewan is too much. And that while Rochester beat them two, two times this year and they could force a third game, the home floor advantage for the Saskatchewan rush would be too much. My heart says I want to go with Rochester because that's where I started my career and I still have a lot of loyal friends in that organization and especially in that coaching staff. But my mind is saying that the rush indeed are too deep 
and they just have too many weapons. And that while the Rochester defense may be able to contain them for a while, I truly don't believe over the course of a three-game series you can shut down that offense enough to limit their chances and stop them from getting to Matt Vince. They're too deep. They're too fast. They're too athletic. And they're just a team that doesn't have many faults. And within those faults, there aren't many cracks. And for Rochester to be successful, they need Kyle Jackson to be massive. They need Cody Jamison to play at another level. They need their three Ohio State boys to find another gear. Their defense has to be unrelenting, punishing, and on the verge of malicious. Billy D. Smith, have free reign. I know he's lost a step or two, but he can still be physical. He can still be a very imposing presence. I think Sid Smith needs to do a number on the back end. I think he needs to be physical. I think Graham Hosick is going to do, um, it's going to have to be asked to do a lot of work on that righty side because it's one of the lethalest in the National Cross League. I'm hyping up Saskatchewan so much that I may be doing a disservice to the Rochester Nighthawks because this is a team that, what, they were 2-6 and six at one point? They've turned things around. They've come together as a group, and they've really rallied. I remember watching that Colorado-Rochester game uh, at the end of March. And Colorado had just come off a big win in Toronto the night before, and Rochester was kind of in the middle of their resurgence. And it was a back-and-forth game, and usually we see Colorado pull away from teams in the fourth. It may have been some tired legs from the night before, but... That Rochester team has the ability to shut good offenses down. They did it to New England. They did it to Georgia. And they've already done it twice during the regular season to this very same rush team. But as I said before, all the past, throw it out the window. This is a brand new year. It is the finals. And you can look at game tape and you can break things down and you can have your game plans. But once the whistle blows, it becomes a chess match. And Mike Hazen and Derek Keenan are going to have to rely on their assistance. They're going to have to rely on their eyes in the sky. They're going to have to rely on their leadership group to relay information back. Because they're going to have to make in-game adjustments. Someone is going to dominate a quarter and the other team is going to have to find a way to combat that. I talked all year long about teams having to stop and not allow other teams go on big long runs. If you see a five or six goal run in this series, that might be enough for teams to win. Runs will be lethal in this series. And I'm wondering how many people are actually truly giving Rochester a chance. I know Gonzo and Naber and K-Hawk Cruising and everybody in the Roch crew. That's K-R-E-W crew. 
are all on board. I'm sure there's probably even some rival Eastern fans who have hopped on board the Kayhawk train. Mind you, there are a lot of NLL Eastern players who are still upset that the Nighthawks knocked them out of the playoffs, and so they're clearly on the rush train. And that works the other way, too. Some of the guys I talked to who played the rush in the playoffs or even during the regular season kind of said, you know what, I'd like to see the Nighthawks win. I'm tired of seeing the rush. Be successful. But I just don't think it happens. Home floor and Mark Matthews will be the deciding factor in this game, in this series. Rush win it. I'm going to say three, but I wouldn't be surprised if it ends in two. But it's going to be exciting. And it all starts Saturday, May 26th in Toontown. Brendan Glasheen and Brian Shanahan will have the call on NLL TV and Twitter. And they had the games this weekend, including a thriller down in Georgia. 20 seconds. Wild tops it. Knocked away by Fitz. 15 seconds. Georgia down one. Trip to the finals on the line. Skip pass to Stotts. Nine seconds. Lyle Thompson, fake pass, Miles no good. Five seconds for Georgia. They've got to get a shot off here. Miles Thompson at the buzzer, no. No more looks. And Rochester, for the first time in four years, is going back to the NLL Finals. What a tremendous game this was, and what an exciting finish. That was the call from the Infinite Energy Center in Gwinnett, Georgia, as Brian Shanahan and our next guest, Brendan Glasheen, had the call in the final seconds as Matt Vince and the Nighthawks held the fort and stopped the Georgia Swarm from going back to the NLL Cup final, ensuring us a new champion for 2018. It'll be a familiar one as the Nighthawks and Rush have won five of the last six NLL titles. Rochester from 2012 to 2014. The Rush a la Edmonton and Saskatchewan in 2016. They almost won it last year. However, they're right back where they were. In their fourth straight Champions Cup final, the Rush will get a chance to get their hands back on the trophy as they take on the Georgia Swarm. As mentioned, Brendan Glasheen will have the call alongside Brian Shanahan. And for all that we knew, for most of us National Lacrosse fans, Brendan Glasheen kind of came out of nowhere. And it was a name not many of us had heard before, especially up north in Canada. And we were wondering how would he do adjusting to the National Lacrosse League. Well, he's about to call his first NLL Cup final, and it's been a long journey. When I caught up with him, we just essentially tried to figure out what a typical Monday to Friday actually looks like. I'm actually uh, I'm at draft the DraftKings office in Boston. Oh, nice. A couple days a week, uh, just doing some video content for them. And then um, other times I'm at the LAC Sports Network studios in Woburn, Mass. They do uh, a nightly show from 9 to 10, and they do some other stuff during the day. So I freelance with both of them. And then if I'm not doing, you know, most of the time it's it's a game on the weekends, Mm -hmm. you know, so a game – now that basketball and uh, basketball and hockey are over, 
at least college-wise, there's, right. there's not a lot of weekday lacrosse games. So mm-hmm. most, of the, most of the games I'm doing are just weekends. Of course. So, so yeah, during the week, I, I plug myself in and out of both places, at uh, Wax Sports Network and then at DraftKings. So I'm, nice, here, I'm here more this week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was travel last week for you? Because you, you and, uh, and Shani were down in Georgia for the first game between Rochester uh, and the Swarm, and you had to do a whirlwind tour to get to Saskatoon the next night. How busy was your day uh, getting between the two cities? <laughs> that was fun. Uh, we got to the hotel. We got to the hotel. Uh, at least I did early Friday afternoon. Shannon got in Friday night, and we were looking at each other like, "Well, this is the most relaxation we'll have over these next <laughs> 70, 72 hours." But we um, we ended up leaving to go to the game, of course, on Saturday night, and then we got back to the hotel by about. 11 o'clock, if you can recall, that Rochester-Georgia uh, game really dragged out at the end because of all yeah. the reviews in that final quarter. And we weren't complaining at the time because it was just so <laughs> thrilling. But we looked at each other after, like, wow, that fourth quarter took you know, a good 45 minutes when you add it all up. So we did our post game. We got out of there. We got back to the hotel. I think we stayed up till like, 1 o'clock. Shandy looks at me and says, oh, I thought it was 11 p.m. Eastern. No, it can't be <laughs> 1 in the morning. We've got we to be, be up in two hours. Yeah. So Shani had rented a car. We were up at 3 a.m., wow. drove to the airport. Now, this Atlanta airport, is you could argue, is the busiest airport in North America. So we had to drop off the rental car at a separate venue attached to the airport, take a shuttle to get to the security check-in. And we, we made it in plenty of time. We had a good we had a half hour to spare. Brian Lemon, the director of officials, was there with us as well, kind of joining us on this on this tour. Yeah, and we managed to get on the plane at six o'clock in the morning to fly to Saskatchewan, and we got there by we had a layover in Toronto. We got to Saskatchewan by about eleven thirty. We had about three hours, and we got in the yeah. car uh, around two thirty, maybe a little earlier than that, maybe two two p.m. Sask time, and drove over to the venue. And we were ready for our second game. Nice. We that's a morning again to fly home. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that, that, that's life in the NLL in a nutshell, man. Um, how did you get involved with the National Lacrosse League? Because um, you guys kind of came sort of with, with the new regime of the National Lacrosse League and Joe Fell bringing in uh, th- th- this new Twitter broadcast group. How did the National Lacrosse League and you uh, come to be partners? So initially, when I had seen the league was looking to bring in announcers at each uh, in each market i kind of um, being in the boston area i just looked into it saying well i did a lot of lacrosse the college level and the mll last year um, I, I looked to see if the new england black wolves were were looking uh, for any help and as it turns out they already had their play-by-play guy um, locked in and i wondered okay well I wasn't really interested in doing an analyst position because I'm just not qualified. I didn't play right. the game. I'm, I'm just I'm not I'm not I'm not comfortable with that. So yeah. uh, at, at the time, I figured, well, I mean, hey, worth a shot. Uh, as it turns out, the league actually said to me, like, hey, you know, if you're interested, there might be a possibility of doing, you know, an out of market each week, you know, game of the week styled broadcast on Twitter. And, of course, I said, yeah, great, sure, yeah. that sounds good. You know, let me know. 
And what do you know, I get a phone call from Joel, I think a week or two later, and he had said to me, hey, I'm now a director of broadcasting for the league, you know, tell me about yourself, yeah. yada, yada, yada. And then we were, the hope was to get the season going, of course, when the league opened up. I think December 8th was when the first batch of games were going on. That didn't work out, but we, we decided on the date of the first weekend of February. I think it was Vancouver at Saskatchewan was our first game. And I'll just say this. The one thing I remember from that first game was Brian Shanahan, who's been awesome as far as just bringing me along and helping me out and helping me learn. The first thing he said to me was, well, we have a good place for you to get started. Saskatchewan is a great spot to uh, really get yourself assimilated and to learn what this league's all about as far as the fan base, how much people care, and the atmosphere this league presents. And it turns out it was a – it was a great game. It was a great atmosphere, and ever since it's been great. So it's crazy to think that we're in the month of May now, turning for June, and it's been that long. So yeah. it's been a lot of fun. What's been the biggest challenge for you adjusting uh, to the indoor game as a broadcaster? Yeah, for sure. It's not a ground ball. It's a loose ball. <laughs> uh, one thing I caught myself doing last week, especially doing the college games, is you don't add up. This. It's like hockey, too, and I think that's just something that you – I was kicking myself about, but you don't add up the goals from the playoffs with the goals in the regular season. Right. Little things like that. Uh, the pace of the game is completely different. It's unbelievable from the field game, how much these guys move. I love the brand, though. It's exciting. Uh, there's a lot of ferocity. I mean, those two games we had last weekend, you can just tell the physicality picks up to a whole new level when yeah. these guys are playing in the postseason. There's just a lot more sense of urgency. Uh, these guys understand that it's, you know, especially that one-and-done format in the division final, I think, raised the level of intensity. So I think the hardest part, and Joel Feld has, has spoken about this a, a, a bit uh, to myself and to Shani and to people around the league, even the officials, the hardest thing about this is that when you do television, you don't want to talk too much. Yeah. You want to you want to call the game like people are viewing it at home, and you don't want to you don't want to always state the obvious stuff that's going on. So it's hard because in a sport like basketball, they're working the ball around the perimeter, they're dumping it inside, they're kicking it out. You don't have to stay every pass. Right. In lacrosse, especially in the indoor game, the, the game was so fast. You never know when someone's going to rip one from outside, or someone's going to collect a rebound on the doorstep and yeah. fling one in. So trying to pick your spots, and in the field game, it's a bit easier because they move a lot slower. There's a lot – I'm not to say there's not strategy in the NLL, but it's, it's a lot – it drags out more in the field yeah. game or the college game. NLL, right. you never know when someone – so one thing – another thing, too, and this is my last point here, when – I think I, I, Christian Del Bianco was the first one to do it when I witnessed it for Calgary. He airs the ball out after a save down the floor – to Curtis Dixon, and he puts one in, you know, Del Bianco will make a save. I don't have time to look down at my, my notes and make, a, and make a comment about Del Bianco being the 20-year-old phenom in case I'm getting a bump on my shoulder. Yeah. Be ready for this ball to be aired out. Or even when the, when the goalie leaves the cage and they put the extra shooter on to go six on five. Yeah, Those were some things in the first couple of weeks that I was still getting used to. And at this point, I feel really comfortable. I'm, not, I'm I'm no pro. I don't I don't think yet, but I, I'll tell you what. I, I definitely, when you look back in February, 
I feel a lot more comfortable. But those are some things that I had I wasn't ready for. Yeah. And those are some things again, I think you can watch tape and you can watch back games all you want. Until you actually do it yourself and be on hand for it, you really don't have a feel for it. And that now I, I feel like I have a, a good sense of what's going on. Absolutely. You you indeed have come a long way. It, it's been nice to watch your growth since since February to now, and you should be very proud of where you've come and where, where you've been. You're, you're doing an excellent job with Shani on the Twitter cast, and I know you guys are going to do a great job this weekend. So let's focus uh, on this weekend in game one. Obviously, Rochester, Saskatchewan, we all know the past. Rochester's beaten Saskatchewan twice this year. But let's focus on that fourth quarter between Georgia and Saskatchewan – or, sorry, Georgia and Rochester in the East semifinal – or the East final. Uh, a very low-scoring game up until that point – what do you think changed between the two teams going into that fourth quarter? Was it a sense of urgency, or was it just a matter of offenses finally finding their rhythm? Yeah, I think Rochester's offense proved to be what it was all year, really potent. I mean, Georgia's – you you have the two hottest teams in the league, arguably, going head-to-head. As good of a season as Saskatchewan had, Rochester and Georgia both went 7-2 over their final nine regular season games. What stood out to me was I think Lyle Thompson was trying to uh, he was trying to time the game out on his own, and when he wanted to flip the switch, and I think he flipped it a bit too late. Now his yeah. his brother Miles got involved a ton. He scored four goals in the game, but Rochester had an answer every time Georgia attempted to make a run. That was normally what was happening to teams that played against Georgia. Georgia was always the team. Okay, we hang around going to the fourth. We're in good shape. We've been here before. You even said it at the top there. You can even look back at the Georgia-Saskatchewan game last year and the Saskatchewan final last year. They've been there before. You had that feel like, okay, as long as Georgia's in the in the mix, they're going to have enough firepower at the end to come through. And it, as it turns out, Rochester, I think, from the beginning of the game to the end of the game was still the more physical team. I think Georgia tried to ramp up its intensity in that second half and into the fourth especially. Yeah. They just didn't turn the corner. They didn't turn it up early enough. And I think Lyle Top they did a great job defensively shutting him down and Lyle did his best to distribute, which is he does a lot of things really well as most of us know. It as it turns out, it just it was just too little too late, I think, for Georgia. And when Miles Thompson is leading them, that's fine. But I think Lyle has to be the guy. And they had two good looks at the end. And Matt Vince, and that's, that's the story of the game for me with Matt yeah. Vince and, and what he's meant to this league over the last 13 years, what he's done uh, between the pipes. He, he showed up. He showed up big time. And as Shani said on the broadcast, one of the goalies have finally blinked in this yeah, game. Yeah, we were just, absolutely. We were mesmerized by the goaltending in the game. Mike Poulin blinked first. And I think the, the, the Rochester intensity from start to finish was just was just there, as opposed to Georgia. I think Georgia uh, tried to turn it up a bit uh, a bit too late. You talk about the veteran leadership of Matt Vince. How about the rookie leadership of a guy like Jake Withers? In his first year, he's just been absolutely phenomenal at the faceoff dot. Goes 14 for 22 uh, in that game against Jordan McIntosh in the Swarm. Uh, there are people who say, you know, face-off and ball control is important. Other people don't think it's that important. But obviously in that game, uh, having Jake Withers as dominant as he was, getting loose balls for the Nighthawks was huge. No question. Yeah, I think especially after the initial draw, Jake Withers has great ability to dash left, dash right, play off of the ball, and also play defensively. 
he stays in the game. He's not Mike, – Mike Hazen likes the fact that he can do both, not just take the, take the draw or, as they like to say, a, a traditional FOGO. He's going to stay on the floor and help out defensively, especially at the top of the box. That, I think, allows Withers to have some rhythm. He was a great goal scorer and even distributed the ball a little bit at Ohio State his senior year. He has experience. The trio of Ohio State grads on the, yeah. on the Rochester team that went to the championship game last year against Maryland. So those guys have sniffed what it feels like to be in, in, in a tough atmosphere getting through the NCAA tournament and then coming up short in the final. Withers, Withers just, I think, the fact that he can do some help and, and do some things defensively allows for him to have a rhythm. Jordan McIntosh, now, while he doesn't necessarily win a ton, like he only won, I think he won 47% of his face-offs on the season. Yeah. He does a lot of things in transition. But he's in, and, he's in and out off the floor. Withers, I think, is on the floor a lot more, which allows him to develop some confidence, get some rhythm. And I think that's a credit, that's a credit to Mike Hazen for putting him in a position where, okay, yeah, he's great to win face-offs, but let's keep this guy on the floor because he can help us out defensively, and that allows for him to be dominant from start to finish. Switching gears to the Sunday game, where Saturday was a very defensive game. Uh, it was close all the way to that fourth quarter. The saskatchewan Calgary was close all game, but both offenses were finding ways inside in two very talented defenses. How fun was that game to call? Yeah, it was excellent. I thought we were saying before the game, you know, do we, do we give Calgary a chance? You know, Saskatchewan took three games. We had looked it up. Calgary has never, I mean, given the result last week, Calgary has never beaten the rush since they've moved to Saskatchewan. They yeah. haven't been able to do it on their home floor or at Saskatel Center. The entire game, unfortunately, felt like Saskatchewan was going to pull it out. Yeah. But they've, they've had, They've had instances this year. They went six and three at home this year. You know, people talk about well, they went nine and zero in the division, and that's that's important. That's important to play in the West Division final. But they they had some blemishes yeah. at home, and when the moments got big, like for example, when they did the humble um, ceremony against Georgia with the jersey auction, they were a no show. Yeah. Fans certainly showed up, but the team. I think the team was. I don't want to say checked out, but I don't think the team is fully locked in. It, it was a lot of stuff going on that day. And, yeah. that, and that's a tough atmosphere to be playing in, given those circumstances. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, on the floor, they weren't at their best. As it turns out, and you feel for Calgary, because Westberg and Curtis Dixon, Dane Doby, they all played out of their minds. And what do they say? What's the cliche in the postseason? Your best players got to show up. Your best players have to be your best players in those scenarios. They certainly did that. They put up great numbers in both of their postseason games, you know, at Colorado and then going uh, going to Saskatchewan. They all played really well. As it turns out, though, the Rush had some chances on the power play. They've been historic in that category this year. They've been yeah. excellent, near perfect, the way they've performed. They've got three guys with more than 15 power play goals on the season or close to it. McIntosh, Matthews. You know, Keenan's son was great. Ryan, Robert Church, just the mainstay. But they just had they just had too much, and, and and that was a that was a similar it was similar to what had happened in previous meetings where down in the you know come crunch time of the fourth quarter the the Curtis Dixon show can only do can only do so much. 
Yeah, yeah. It's not because it's a lack of effort or, you know, a lack of preparation. The Rush are just a really good team, and they've yeah. been that way the last five, six years. Absolutely. The one thing that really stood out for me was you talk about big players stepping up in big games, and, and Berg and Dixon and Doby did that. Unfortunately for Calgary, nobody else was able to step up, and it's the depth of scoring that Saskatchewan has that makes them so potent. Calgary only had four guys that scored in that game, while Saskatchewan had, I think, nine. And it just speaks to yeah. the level of competeness that is in that Saskatchewan locker room where everybody has a green light to go, but everybody has confidence in themselves to be a part of the offense. And I think that that depth has been one of Saskatchewan's strengths all year long. Sure, yeah. I think you got to give Derek Keenan a lot of credit how he's built this thing since being in Edmonton and then when the team moved a couple of years ago to Sask, they've done a tremendous job of, of developing. They've got chemistry offensively, even in the power play. It's even it's to a greater degree their chemistry is excellent um offensively. And yeah, I think that's a good point by you. I mean Calgary only has four guys score. Saskatchewan has nine. And then you you factor in a guy like Chris Corbeil, their captain who had a great pass up the floor to Mark Matthews just yeah. when the defense of Calgary was in no man's land. That was kind of the dagger. You felt that in the building when Matthews put that one in. And that, by the way, Matthews, to me, since seeing Matthews in February to now, what we saw two weeks ago or a week and a half ago now, he looks right. He didn't look entirely like himself. If I, and that's, that's going off of people that know the league well. Um, Shanny in particular. Shanny was telling me he he hasn't looked right. And then as I said to Shanny, he says, "What do you think now?" And says, "I think he's I think he's playing at at his highest level at the right time." Yeah. And given his experience, that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I mean they they've just got so many weapons. The question is, can the Rochester weapons that are a bit younger and a little less experienced? And I'm I'm talking the last couple of years. Absolutely. Right? You, could, you might have two. You might have the two dynastic teams gathering here, Rochester winning 12 through 14, of course, and then, uh, and then you know, Saskatchewan winning two years ago and just being a, a normal representative in the finals the last couple of years, uh, it, it, makes for a, it makes for a juicy matchup. But yeah, the, you, cannot, you cannot dismiss the experience of the Rush and their forwards. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's only about seven or eight guys on the Nighthawks team that have that have been to a championship game, and that's been, what, three or four years since they were on their three championship runs. So it's going to be a, a bit of a learning out process in that game once. Let's focus on that. Rochester, like we talked about on the top one to two games against the Rush this year. How much do you think that plays coming into game one? What do you think? <laughs> uh, I, I I don't think it does. I think playoffs are a completely different beast. Whenever you go uh, in, into the finals, I think well, going into Saskatchewan, that that arena, that organization is built for championships, and they'll be ready to go. I think it's going to be a tough spot for Rochester to go in and steal one, um, but they've done it before all year. I just think once you get to the playoffs, this rush team has a chance to find another gear. Yeah, I to be, to be, I was just kidding out because I was like, well, uh, what, well, what do you got? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of agree. I mean, I, I think what the league's also hoping for here, and not that I think the league is going to – but I think a lot of people that root for the league and watch the league, is, are we going to get a final that goes three games or what? Yeah. Is, that, is that ever yeah. going to happen? Uh, this might be the year that could happen given, given how good uh, Saskatchewan – 
normally on their better days is good at home. But as you mentioned, um, they've certainly been human at home, losing three games there this year to Rochester, or one, you know, one against Rochester at home, one to Georgia, and I can't recall the other loss they've had at home. Uh, uh, again, they didn't lose to anybody in the division. It was Buffalo. Yeah, okay. It was Buffalo, yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, home, I mean, this is why you play the game. This is why yeah. going 14 and four gives you the home, the home four, in, in a best of three. That that's one thing that didn't change. Of course, last year with the or, or years prior having the format in the division finals of a three-game set. That one game elimination game is, is having home floor is even more important. I think having home floor that the meaning is still the same. How do I feel they again? How do I how do I feel they match up? Oh, at least Rochester defensively in the guy like Sid Smith. We talked about Vince in the cage. What he did last week. They went on the road and beat the defending champions. That to me, I don't think it's going to elevate their confidence because well, I think it's I'm not, it's not going to knock their confidence either. But what I think that last week proved was they have the capability of going into your building and winning. At this point, and again, this is cliche, but I mean, what do those two meetings really, really mean at this stage when when Rochester is coming into this thing with momentum? Like I said before, outside of Georgia, they they are, given their win last week against them, they are the hottest team in the yeah. league in the second half of the year. They're hitting their stride at the right time. Their young players have confidence, like Kyle Jackson and Austin Shanks. Rest of Terrace is kind of anchoring that group, as well as uh, Cody Jamison, who has been a stud year after year in the league. Just can't make any penalties either, right? Yeah, that, yeah, get, that was going to be the next point, because you, you got two of the top – regular season power plays going into the finals, mm. which should be yeah. uh, key for both teams to, and coaches to stay out of the box. Yeah, Rochester was just just under 60%, which was second to Saskatchewan. I think the rush were around – I mean, they were plus 70 all year, hovering yeah, around 75 67, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, they, they, they became human in that category too a little bit as the season yeah. wound down. But what – what has stood out over those first two playoff games in the division final was the physicality picks up. You can't get you can't get too overwhelmed by a non-call or a call that doesn't go your way. You have to keep your emotions in check, I would think, right? Especially for Rochester when you're on their home floor and you know not just them being on their home floor, the the the, the idea of putting them Putting Saskatchewan on the power play is a big no-no. You cannot let them get in there. And again, I could, you can say the same for uh, Saskatchewan can't put Rochester in those situations. As you mentioned, they're the top top two power play teams in the league. Yeah. I just think that the that the road teams in this series, forever for for how long it goes, have to be extremely disciplined because I think these home fours on each side are going to be wild up. And I've been at Saskatchewan now a couple, you know, handful of times now this year. When they're when they're locked and loaded uh, at Sastel, they are they are tough. They are tough to beat because that that is the that is the extra man on the floor. That crowd. You can find Brendan Glashine on Twitter. He's BJ underscore Glash, and he will have the call with Brian Shanahan Saturday night from the tune, and then once again. Out in Rochester for game two, and then if necessary, game three back in Saskatoon. And if it goes three, and I don't have lacrosse, I might have to get myself 
on a plane and go check that out because a game three, a one and done, winner take all between the Nighthawks and the Rush, probably the best case scenario for these games. If we can get the Rush to win game one, Nighthawks win game two, I think game three will be an absolute throwdown. And I think a lot of people are liking that idea. Most of the people I talked to felt that um, the home teams would win all three series, or sorry, all three games. And I'm kind of liking that scenario myself. However, I'm still favoring the rush. I just think they're too deep, too strong, and too talented. And Keenan will just have his guys ready to go. And I know Hazer will too. However, I'm picking the rush. I'm going with the rush, and I'm going to say in three games. Three games, the rush take it. Sticking with it. Speaking of game two of the National Lacrosse League playoffs, which will go Saturday, June 2nd, at halftime, we are going to have ourselves a good old-fashioned coin toss. The world is cruel, and the only morality in a cruel world is chance. Unbiased, unprejudiced, fair, 50-50. That's right. Paul Day, Patrick Merrill, please assume your positions at center floor. We are about to find out who will have first pick in the National Lacrosse League entry and National Lacrosse League expansion draft. Wednesday, the NLL announced that both Philadelphia and San Diego will be on hand during Game 2 of the NLL Cup Final, and at halftime, the respective general managers will probably meet at center floor. Maybe they'll do it um, in that open area behind the net at the BCA and have it all set up with a table. You'll have both GMs, Paul Day and Patrick Merrill. You'll have yourself a coin on one side, seals. On the other side, wings. We're going to toss it up. We're going to let it spin. We're going to let it flip. When it hits the ground, who's ever heads up gets to make the choice. I was hoping for, like, you know, a cage battle or something, a Paul Day versus Patrick Merrill American Gladiators jousting match on top of a rotating pole over a pool of ferocious alligators. Not going to happen. So, we'll get a coin toss. And the winner, like I said, will get to decide whether they want first in the entry or first in the expansion. Uh, Having spoken with both Paul Day and Patrick Merrill, they have said that they have more weight in the entry draft overall, number one, and expect it to go that way. I would imagine that either GM will gladly take the number one overall pick in this year's draft, and there could be some fireworks at that number one spot. Both teams will be happy, obviously, with who they pick number one overall. Consensus heading in right now, uh, it's either going to be Connor Robinson or Chris Cloutier, that goes number one. And if you look at it, if it's San Diego who has that first pick, with Robinson being a West Coast guy, I can see them taking him. If it's Philadelphia, Cluche being a Kitchener, Ontario kid, going to UNC, plays for Coburg, I can see Philadelphia and Paul Day taking Cloutier at the number one spot. Either way, 
Day and Merrill are going to get their guy. And that draft will be very important for not just them, but for everybody else who falls in line in that draft because this is a very talented pool. Uh, I think we're still waiting to figure out if Austin Stats will declare for the National Lacrosse League draft or not. And if he does, that could throw a bit of a wrench in things. But after that, we have to look forward to the expansion draft. And if you go to Lax All-Stars, you can check out Evan Schemenauer's article. Again, he does a wonderful job breaking down who's a free agent, who's an unrestricted free agent, um, guys that he thinks will be protected and guys that he thinks will be left unprotected. Uh, it's a great look at who is possibly out there. And it's a good look at who teams may take and may not take. Some surprising names um, that he has left off rosters on the protected list and off. Um, It's hard to argue with much uh, of what Evan says and who he goes with. But again, it's all going to be up to um, what teams feel they need. And he makes a really good point where he said that teams are only going to get nine players out of this. And so... It may not be you're you're not building depth. You're probably just picking the best guys that you can. Just build your roster with the best possible player that you can. Don't worry about depth. You're gonna get that in the draft. You're gonna get that in free agency. You need to build the nucleus core of your team right now with the best possible players you can get. And I think Paul Day and Patrick Merrill and their staffs are gonna have to do um, a very in-depth job once these. Uh, protected lists come out, uh, which I believe will probably be sometime, um, a- obviously, after the champion, or uh, I almost did it again, after the NLL Cup final. I'm, you're probably looking at late June, sometime in July. And when that does happen, again, like I said, there's going to have to be some very deep scouring uh, through those protected lists. Uh, I think players are going to need to talk to, you know what, if we take here, you're going to be willing to relocate or Uh, Maybe there's going to be some side deals done, much like uh, the Las Vegas Golden Knights did. And obviously, everybody knows um, how their year has turned out. So once we get through this coin toss in a couple weeks, now we're going to start to sort of get a little glimpse of how teams will begin to look. We'll know who's going to have that first overall pick. And then you can kind of lean one way or the other of Robinson or Cloutier um, unless, again, Stotts is in that draft, that might change things. But overall, we're starting to make some progress for these expansion teams. Now, everyone's favorite Twitter troll, Jim Else, just kidding, uh, put out the tweet of, will either the Wings or the Seals have Las Vegas Golden Knights luck next year in their first year of the National Cross League? And it's a pretty good question, and you have to think about it. Is it possible for a team right now in lacrosse, the National Lacrosse League, to go through the expansion process, go through the draft, and go through free agency and build a team that can compete with the Nighthawks or the Rush right now? You can take two players off of both teams. That would be sort of, you know, taken in expansion. Obviously, you're not going to take the top 11 guys off team, so pick a depth guy. 
take them off that team? And do you think that the Seals or the Wings could actually battle through their divisions and get to the cup final? I don't think it can happen. I don't think that there's a chance for that to happen. I think this coin toss is going to be huge because that number one overall pick in the entry draft is going to be so big. I just don't think you're going to be able to build a true contender from an expansion draft. Now, everybody said that about the Las Vegas Golden Knights once they had their draft and they put their team together and everybody looked at George McVie's club and said, no, no chance. This group cannot do it. Well, they've proved everybody wrong. So let's not close the door quite yet on the Seals or Wings being able to get to a cup final in their first year. Anything is possible. Unfortunately, I just don't think it's doable. Although I am very excited at the thought of it. And this coin toss on the second will get us a little bit closer to all that fun. Please don't believe this is a joke. The coin to us is sacred. Yes, Alpha? Sacred. You toss that coin, you take a bet before witnesses. And if I win, then we'll insist that the terms of this agreement wager are fulfilled. Toss the coin, Mr. Gold. I don't think the meeting between Paul Day and Patrick Merrill will go down quite like that little scene from Peaky Blinders, but you never know. Away from the National Lacrosse League, um, the Western Lacrosse Association kicks off on Wednesday night. The Burnaby Lakers will head to the LEC to take on the Langley Thunder. Everyone's favorite announcer, Jake Elliott, will have the call. I think Jake is pretty much calling every single game on the mainland that's not at New West. He'll be calling games from the LEC, from the Cave, um, from the Palace, and that's it. I think those are the only three teams. He won't be doing New West games. He's not doing Victoria games, and he's not doing Enamel games. So that's six, yeah. So Jumbo will have the call tonight. Um, and most nights from the Lower Mainland. So if you're checking out Playful Scream, you hear lots of Jake Elliott's dulcet tones calling games. And as mentioned, the Thunder and Lakers will kick things off Wednesday night, 7.30, over at the LEC. Then you got Thursday, New West, Maple Ridge. Friday, Victoria hosts Burnaby. Saturday, Coquitlam visits Nanaimo. Or no, that's Coquitlam hosting Nanaimo. And then Sunday, the Ridge takes on Nanaimo. And games... Throughout the rest of the summer, WLALacrosse.com for all your stats, news, and information. And then, of course, PlayFullScreen.com will have all of your WLA lacrosse games, and you can watch them live or on archive through the fine folks at PlayFullScreen. You can also buy WLA Flex 5 or Flex 10 packs, um, whatever you want, or you can just pay game by game. And if you want to do game by game, well, they're only 10 bucks. 
10 bucks a game, 35 bucks for a five game flex pass, 50 bucks for a 10 game pass. And again, the website, playfullscreen.com. And we'll just start the road to figure out who's going to head west. Nope. Who's going to head east for the Man Cup this year? New West, the defending WLA champions, looking to get back to the Man Cup for the second straight year. Maple Ridge trying to get back to the Man Cup for the first time in two years. And I think those are probably your one-two teams this year. Um, as much as I am a Victoria Shamrock alumni and will be calling their games, I just don't think they have it in them to supersede the Bellies or the Berards. Those two teams are just going to be too deep. Their goaltending will be at a higher level than Victoria's. Um, Victoria will have Adam Shute, Cody Hagedorn, and maybe even some relief work from Cody Cook. Three good young goaltenders. I just don't think they're good enough to get Victoria over the hump. However, it's going to be a very, very long season all the way in to August before we can claim a WLA champion and send somebody to take on the best in the East. A couple little things that um, I've kind of heard some rumbles of as I've ran into a few people uh, through the lacrosse worlds. I was at a coaching clinic uh, this past weekend in Vancouver, so I saw a few uh, WLA guys out there as well. Um, Chris Levis made an appearance at a WLA practice, trying out, I believe, with the Maple Ridge Berards. Uh, Levy's got to be in his 40s, trying to pull a Dwight Metke and reinvent himself. And it'll be interesting to see if Levis earns a spot with the Berards. Obviously, that's going to be Frankie Chiliano's number one spot that he's going to be trying to get. And you're not, you're, you know Frankie's not going to give up that easily. And since Frankie hasn't been playing a lot of lacrosse this winter and spring, you know he's going to be itching to get back between the cages. The other little tidbit that I heard was that New West may have picked up Vince Johansson, who is a, a noted fist thrower. And there could be a possibility that Thursday night, Daniel Amesbury and Vince Johansson have a little dance. And that would be a fight that I would love to sit down and watch really close. Because those two guys aren't really fans of each other, um, but they also love to throw the knuckles. And if that happens, you know I'm going to be watching that game go down. And I think it's going to happen. Actually, I don't think it's going to happen. I just hope it's going to happen. Because as much as people want lacrosse out of the game, there is the sick sadist part inside of me that loves to see two guys who just want to go out and beat each other up, go out and beat each other up. Have at it. I'm not so down with stage fights, and I just hate bench-clearing brawls when things just get ridiculous. But if two guys just want to dance, get it over with, go sit in the box for 10, then go hang out for a while, I'm down with it. You're not going to see me doing it, but I'm down with it. The other news out of the Western Lacrosse Association was that they are moving to a three-referee system. Now, it doesn't say if they're going to work it like the National Lacrosse League does, where it's sort of a floating triangle, much like they use in the NBA, or if it's going to be 
two referees running the floor and a third technical referee watching through the middle to watch changes and things like that. I have a feeling it'll be more like the NLL NBA system where three officials are floating and rotating so they can see all parts of the floor. In the press release, Commissioner Paul Del Monte said, quote, with the tremendous speed of our players and the ever-improving pace and caliber of play in the WLA, we felt it was essential to make the move in order to ensure the best possible officiating for our teams and a better game experience for our great fans. Well, that may very well be true, but I can guarantee you the fans are still going to boo the officials. That is not going to change. Teams are still going to yell at Pepper. That's not going to change. Chris Welch up beside me in the booth is going to be screaming at the officials. It just gives him one more guy to blame. However, I don't hate the move because if you give the referees the ability to police the game properly and allow things not to get out of hand, then it's fine. If you're adding a third referee and they just start calling everything, then I don't like it. Because that's the concern that some people have. They have this concern that you add another set of eyes and they're just going to now start calling everything because now it's six eyes instead of four so you can see more. If that's the case, then I'm not so sure that I want that third referee out there because if it breaks up the flow of the game, then it defeats the purpose of saying with the tremendous speed of our players. If the tremendous speed of your players is hampered by having stoppages and penalties and power plays every three or four minutes, it defeats the purpose of being the fastest game on two feet. So if the officials will rain down on the cheap stuff and the dirty stuff and the things that our game doesn't need, that's fine. If they become ticky-tack and start calling every little thing and break up the flow of the game and we're getting whistles every 20 seconds, then I don't like the move. It'll be very interesting to see how the referees adjust to this because I don't think all WLA referees have ever been in a three-man system because there's not a lot of WLA guys that ref in the National Lacrosse League where they're getting that experience. So it will be very interesting to see tonight in game one of the series of the season how this three-man system works. In the press release, it also says all three on-floor officials will share responsibilities and have equal authority to call penalties and manage the game. So that may mean there's no one head referee. Everybody is on the same level. That part kind of scares me because you need one dominant voice out there. You need one guy who's the guy. And then the other two guys, we can all confer, but this guy has final say if there's a discrepancy. If all three guys have equal authority you might get a lot of headbutting and guys trying to overrule each other. So I think this system, while in the long run will be good for the game, I think there might be some early season issues that need to be ironed out as the year goes along. And hopefully Paul Del Monte and newly appointed executive director Ben Hilches are able to maintain a high level of lacrosse by not allowing the officials to intervene too much. Because as we've always said, Referees should never be the reason a game is not enjoyable. Fans come to see the players, not the guys in the stripes. So let's hope 
that this extra set of eyes doesn't affect the experience and the play on the floor. And finally, got to shout out everybody competing in NCAA championship weekend this weekend over and out in Boston. Uh, last weekend in the round of eight, there were some incredible games. Now everybody was watching that Albany-Duke game for the battle at the face-off dot, uh, which lived up to all the hype. But unfortunately for Duke, uh, they came out on the losing end. And so the Albany Great Danes will head to their first ever NCAA Final Four. And I think everybody is cheering for Albany that's not a Maryland, Yale, or Duke fan. I just think that the Albany story... Ever since Scott Maher has been there and everything that the Thompson brothers have done for that program and everything that's built up over the past few years with that program, I think everybody would love to see the Great Danes win that and come away as NCAA champions. And they have a wonderful shot to do it. And they have an incredible team. Obviously, everybody knows the Hoka Nanakoke and everything that he does and his attack partner, Connor Fields. Just an incredible duo. But you can't take away the years that Maryland and Yale and Duke have had. There's no easy trip to the finals. It's Yale against Albany Saturday. Duke versus Maryland will be the second game. Both those games on Saturday. Unfortunately for us Canadians, unless you're Jake Elliott and have uh, someone's secret password from the States and an IPS scrambler or whatever the heck that thing is that confuses the computer, tells you where you are, you're not going to see it up here which is really unfortunate, just the way it is. If you can drive across the border and find a bar in the States, you're close enough to do it. If you're close enough to Jake Elliott's house, go crash his party. Uh, he's going to be laying in his bed so you can go watch it with him. He might be on his couch. I think he's got a pretty big couch. Uh, the other games that are going on at the Final Four weekend, um, obviously the D2 National Championship game, St. Leo versus Merrimack, and the D3 game, Wesleyan versus Salisbury. Those go on Sunday. And looking at that D2 final, I'm kind of happy that it doesn't involve Limestone and it doesn't involve LeMoyne. Uh, I wish the Mercier's Lakers were there. But who the heck or where the heck is St. Leo? I remember it was like a month ago, and we were just talking about D2 rankings and stuff like that, and, and I was saying how many of the teams in the top 20 of D2 weren't around 15 years ago when I was at Mercyhurst. St. Leo, never heard of them. Congratulations for making it to the finals, but it just goes to show how expanding that D2 division is. When I was in D2, there was maybe like a dozen schools playing D2 lacrosse. Now there's like 50. It's wonderful to see. I'm going to take Merrimack. I'll take Salisbury to beat Wesleyan in the D3 final. I'll take uh, an Albany-Maryland final with the Great Danes winning. Nanakoke, overtime winner. Why not? Why not? Oh, one last thing uh, before I get out of here. Uh, and this just kind of reminded me, and I was talking about Mercyhurst. Um, for those that don't know, Mercyhurst, D2 College, Erie, Pennsylvania. That's actually now a D2 university. They switched. Anyway. It's in Erie, Pennsylvania. I went there from 97 to 2001. I know a couple guys like Tyson Geick went there a couple years after me. The reason I'm saying this, if you're a Netflix person, watch the documentary called Evil 
genius. It's a four-parter. The episodes are no longer than 50 minutes. It is an absolutely insane crime doc. Cole's notes. A dude has a bomb trapped around his neck, attached to his chest, walks into a bank, robs the bank, and then gets caught by the cops. And as the cops are trying to figure out what to do with him, they realize it's a bomb on his chest. And then the bomb goes off. I'll leave it at that. Trust me. Watch it. I I binged it in one night. It was well worth it. I'm also going to binge the NLL Division Finals from this past weekend just to get my mind caught up and refreshed on everything that we missed with the week off. I think you should too. NLL TV's got them. Check them out. And then get set for Game 1. Rush Nighthawks. Saturday. NLL TV and live on Twitter. You can check it out there. Thanks to Brendan Glasheen for joining me on the show. Uh, it was great to have him this week. Always um, encouraging to hear young people getting into the broadcast game and having some success and being rewarded for their work. Until then, my name is Teddy Jenner. At Off the Crossbar is the Twitter account. Teddy.Jenner at gmail.com is the email. Enjoy game one. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, be excellent to each other.